0: From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I am Michelle McKay, Nurse Practitioner and AANP Education Specialist, your host of today's special edition episode, and this is MP Pulse, the voice of the Nurse Practitioner. Welcome to MP Pulse. AAMP's monthly podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back regularly each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. I'm excited to announce that NP Pulse podcast listeners may claim CE credit for this program through February 2025. After you listen to the podcast, simply go to aanp.org forward slash CE Center, register for this activity, and then complete the post-test and evaluation. On this podcast, nurse practitioners, Drs. Leslie Davis and Mitch Bowers, join us to discuss the four pillars of medication for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Leslie Davis is a faculty member of the School of Nursing at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She maintains a part-time NP practice at the Division of Cardiology at UNC Chapel Hill. She is a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing, the American College of Cardiology, the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, the American Heart Association, and the Preventative Cardiovascular Nurses Association. Mitch Bowers is a professor at Duke University School of Nursing and lead faculty for the cardiology specialty. She has extensive experience in the care of patients with cardiovascular disease and maintains a part-time NP practice in the Division of Cardiology in a heart failure access clinic at Duke Health. She's also a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing, the American College of Cardiology, and the American Association of Nurse Practitioners.
1: It's my absolute pleasure to welcome our guests, Leslie and Midge. Thank you for having me today. I'm honored to join Dr. Midge Bowers to talk about heart failure, a cardiovascular condition that affects many adults worldwide. Despite the remarkable growth in therapeutic options over the past two decades, this condition continues to be associated with high mortality and morbidity. But nurse practitioners can make a difference in helping reduce both by making sure patients are offered the latest treatment. Let's start with what heart failure is and the four main classifications for heart failure. Based on the 2022 American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, and the Heart Failure Society of America guideline for the management of heart failure, the universal definition for heart failure is that it's a complex clinical syndrome with symptoms and signs that result from any structural or functional impairment of ventricular filling or ejection of blood. That's a lot. Heart failure can be classified by stages as well as by the left ventricular function. So there's four main classifications of heart failure. The first one, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or what we will refer to As HEFREF during this podcast. This is where the left ventricular ejection fraction is less than or equal to 40%. Next is heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction or EF, 41 to 49%. And then there's what we call HEFPEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, where the EF is greater than 50%. And last, heart failure with improved EF. This is where the left ventricular ejection fraction has 10% improvement from baseline. So, for the purposes of today's discussion, we will focus on HEF-REF. Midge, do you want to start the discussion on medications used in treating HEF-REF?
2: Sure. Thanks, Leslie. And I also want to thank both of us, too, you all so much for the opportunity to participate in this NP Pulse podcast on a very significant topic. So as you noted in the introduction, I see patients in a heart failure access clinic with a focus on all facets of heart failure. In this podcast, Leslie and I want to focus on the importance of the four-pillar therapy in treating HEFREF and the opportunities you have as nurse practitioners in titrating medications across all practice settings. So the four pillars of therapy for Hefref are one ARNI arb two beta blockers, three mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, or MRAs, and four SGLT inhibitors. Notice I didn't say SGLT one or SGLT two because we're all encompassing in this category. These four medication classes improve morbidity, reduce mortality, most importantly, improve quality of life, and contribute to reducing hospitalizations. Leslie, two of these four pillars have been the mainstay HEFREF for as long as you and I have been practicing NPs. Can you please talk about how ARNI, ACE, and ARB, as well as beta blockers, benefit patients with HEFREF? Thank you, Midge. Yes, we'll start with talking about
1: patients need to be on either an ARNI an ACE inhibitor, or an ARB. The ARNI will go first. That is the one that's newest, but also the one with now the highest level of evidence, class 1A, for patients with HEF-REF, and symptoms. Specifically, New York Heart Association, class 2 to 4 symptoms. And this class of medicines can reduce morbidity or mortality. ARNI is basically a combination agent. It has a neprilysin inhibitor, which is sucubitril, and an ARB, the classic angiotensin receptor blocker, valsartan in this case. At this current time, this is the only medication in this class of ARNIs. Based on the Paradigm HF trial, Arnie's have been shown to have a significant clinical benefit. They decrease cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization better than enalapril, an ACE inhibitor in that trial. And in fact, the number needed to treat to prevent one of those endpoints over about 27 months was 21. That's a lot of numbers for a podcast, Mitch but that's not many when you compare it to other classes of drugs. So you will see that many patients in your practice, and you will have improved their care. The latest guidelines have assigned this class of meds, again, the highest level of evidence, higher than ACE inhibitors or ARBs. In the past, many nurse practitioners and other providers would focus on starting their patients on an ACE inhibitor, or ARB, and then later switch to the, quote, better class of meds, the ARNIs. Now, based on the current guidelines, you can start patients directly on this medication from the beginning. So let's talk about, though, first, if you have a patient on an ACE inhibitor, or an ARB, how you would convert them over. If they're on an ARB, you just stop one day and convert to the other. However, an ACE inhibitor is a special case. It's required to have a 36-hour washout period to reduce the risk of angioedema. And in order to do that, what you need to do is, first of all, if you're switching them from an ACE to an ARNI, make sure the patient has an adequate blood pressure, that they're not symptomatic with hypotension or decompensated. But you, what you would do is stop the medication one day, The ACE, if it's an ACE inhibitor that's once a day in the morning or it's twice a day, stop it that last evening and then make sure there's 36 hours or more washout. So if the 36 hours was like three in the morning, wait and take that RNA the next day, but at least a 36 hour. Now, I'm just going to touch on the others. So an ACE inhibitor, to remind you, these are medications that end in pril, such as lisinopril, ramipril, enalapril, and captopril. There's others. One thing we keep in mind, if a patient is on an ACE inhibitor for their HEF-REF and they develop a cough, consider switching the patient to an ARNI or an ARB. Keep in mind, though, that some coughs are from fluid overload, and it might not necessarily be an ACE inhibitor cough. Also, the ARBs is one of those three options between an ARNI, ACE inhibitor, and ARB. These are angiotensin receptor blockers, medications that end with basically Sartan, Losartan, Candesartan, Valsartan, and others. For all of these classes of meds, be it ARNI, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, monitor your patients for hypotension. Again, it would need to be symptomatic hypotension to be a concern. Or changes in kidney function, in particular, hyperkalemia. One of the things Midge and I like to do is to give you a pearl during these podcasts. And my pearl comes from a nephrologist I work with. They say expect a bump in BUN and creatinine when you start or maybe up titrate these RND's ACE inhibitors, or ARBs. As long as that bump is less than 30% and the potassium is controlled, it will level off. Next, I'll switch to the second category, Midge, that you asked me about, briefly, beta blockers. Beyond those ARNES ACE inhibitor ARB, you choose one. You also have your patients on beta blockers. Now, for HEF-REF, it needs to be one of three very specific beta blockers that are FDA-approved for heart failure with reduced EF. Those include metoprolol-sutsinate, or XL, or toprol-XL, you may be more familiar with, or carvedilol, which is trade name COREG or the last one, bisoprolol. These beta blockers save lives. They're the highest level of evidence. We've known that for 20 years. Class 1A for current or previous heart failure symptoms to reduce mortality and hospitalization. They also reduce angina in patients that have coronary artery disease and BTEC arrhythmias. So before I continue on, I would like to pass it to Midge. Midge, can you share the benefits of the other two pillars of therapy for half is the MRAs and the SGLT inhibitors. They're not one or two anymore. Thanks, Leslie.
2: I know that's going to take a little while to get into our lexicon. So the MRAs, I'm not going to say mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists anymore. There's two, and that's really nice because it's easy to remember, either spironolactone or a Plerinone. And those two now have a level of evidence A, the highest level, for patients who have NYHA class 2 through 4. So basically, it's everybody but class 1. And these are supportive because they benefit by reducing morbidity and mortality. Now, a couple caveats. Obviously, patients have to have a potassium less than 5.0 milliequivalents per liter, and that's because these are potassium-sparing diuretics, and their estimated glomerular filtration rate, hence further known as GFR, should be greater than 30 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meter squared. Wow, that's a lot of numbers. Here's my pearl for this is you're looking at a patient and they're starting this medication. You really need to make sure you monitor one week after initiation four weeks after initiation, and any titration. And we'll talk a little bit more about titration in in a few minutes. But concerning also is patients that stop using salt and use a salt substitute. Just a reminder, those salt substitutes are potassium-based. So really monitoring the potassium, making sure your GFR is greater than 30, and talking to patients about salt substitute. The other pearl is that they sometimes think this is a diuretic. And what you want to say, it's a very weak diuretic. It's helping keep your heart stronger. Now, sometimes patients develop gynecomastia if they're on spironolactone. They may also develop impotence or menstrual irregularities. Consider switching them to a plerinone, which has a little bit different pharmacokinetic properties. Secubitril-Valsartan has a lower risk of hyperkalemia when used with those MRAs as compared to the ACEs and ARBs that Leslie mentioned previously. Now we're going to switch gears to those SGLT inhibitors or sodium glucose co-transport inhibitors. That includes Dipagloflosin, empagliflozin, and the newest kit on the block, sotagliflozin, all approved for use in patients with HEFREF. Again, Level of evidence is A for patients with chronic heart failure to reduce their heart failure hospitalizations and cardiovascular mortality. The question is, why wouldn't we want to use this, right? So patients who have HEFREC with that EF of less than or equal to 40% with or without diabetes, and again, NYJ class 2 to 4. It originally was developed for patients with type 2 diabetes and showed remarkable benefits in patients with HEFREP. Believe it or not, these benefits are seen within days of initiation. This is a game changer. Start it as soon as you can. So the good news for these SGLT inhibitors is that it's a fixed dose and there's really no titration. Compared to other pillars, they are less likely to cause hypotension and often prevent the need for diuretics and makes hyperkalemia less likely for those who are on the MRAs we just discussed. However, SGLT's inhibitors work by causing glycosuria, so NPs should consider reducing the diuretic dose to prevent potential dehydration. Be cautious in initiating this class of medication in patients who are at risk for developing a genital mycotic infection. So I think about really stressing personal hygiene with patients when I start this. So now that we've reviewed the four pillars, let's move on to how to initiate and titrate these meds. Leslie, there has been a recent clinical trial that supports the benefits of initiation and very rapid titration of these meds. Can you share some of this clinical trial data with our audience? Yes, Midge. So I think about this as the why
1: for what we call rapid guideline-directed medical therapy titration. So historically, you and I, the past 20 years, we initiate and titrate these medicines we're talking about. Now, granted, the SGLT inhibitors weren't traditionally on the market, but we started these meds one at a time. We would up titrate every two to four weeks, and it would take several months to get patients in a stepwise pattern up to the target doses. We have not mentioned that yet, but we get them up to the target doses. That have been shown in the clinical trials to have the most benefit. And the patient needs to be able to tolerate those target doses. And we know more is better. But there's a a clinical trial, it's called Strong HF. I love these names. This was a landmark study in the last year or so. It actually came out in 2022 comparing rapid titration of guideline-directed medical therapy with close follow-up with a goal to reach target doses by six weeks versus usual care. Wow, six weeks. But you know, Midge, you just mentioned that last class of meds can have benefits very quickly, so I'm inspired. Based on this study, the initiation of all four therapies and rapid titration of these meds In six weeks, can actually prevent heart failure decompensation, reduce the risk of hospitalization, and decrease all cause mortality at 180 days, six months. So, these precious months after diagnosis or hospitalization matter. The study, in fact, was stopped early by the Data Safety Monitoring Board because the benefit was so remarkable. And talk about the number needed to treat in this trial. For number needed to treat was six patients to prevent one death or heart failure hospitalization in six months. Wow, just six of your patients that you would have had on rapid titration with close follow-up compared to the traditional method, you would have prevented a death or hospital hospitalization in the next six months. That's an absolute risk reduction of 8.1%. These results of strong HF indicate the benefit of early up titration of the four pillars was evident even at 30 to 60 days. Wow. So this makes the case for the four pillars and for rapid titration. But how do we do that? Some of our listeners, Midge, may practice in the hospital setting, Can you talk about how nurse practitioners would use the four pillars of therapy
2: in the hospital setting? Thanks, Leslie. I think it is important to know that most often patients are hospitalized with symptoms and need to be decongested. But once they're clinically stable, all four medication classes can be started at low doses at the same time. Now, for those of us in practice for a while, we're thinking, oh my, I only started one medication, titrated it up, started the next medication, but your discussion of the strong HF trial debunks that. We really need to be starting at least two classes at the same time and then start the other two. Optimizing the guideline-directed medical therapy in the hospital setting is actually associated with a lower risk of readmission and post-discharge death. So let's discuss two potential strategies to initiate the four-pillar medications in a six-week period rather than over several months. Now, full disclosure, we will have tables with these strategies available to you with the podcast. So just listen along. So strategy number one, day one, you start the ARNI, beta blocker, MRA, and SGLT inhibitor all at low doses. Day seven to 14, now this might be for you in primary care or cardiology practice, seeing a patient at a hospital follow-up visit, you're gonna continue that ARNI at the same dose, but you'll titrate up the beta blocker. Continue the MRA and the SGLT. Days 14 to 28, so that's that two to four week, you're gonna titrate up your ARNI, as well as the beta blocker, maybe the MRA, and continue. Remember, we talked about the SGLT inhibitors being a fixed dose. During this six-week time period, you're also monitoring kidney function, potassium levels, checking the EGFR, because there are certain parameters for all of these medications that you really need to adhere to. So looking for that EGFR to stay above 30. Okay, so finally, in that three-week to six-week window, you may have options to continue to titrate up that ARNI, titrate up that beta blocker, and you will be continuing on your target doses of your MRA and your SGLT. Now that's the four medications at once strategy. Let's talk a little bit about the two medications at once. On day one, you'd start your ARNI and your SGLT. Remember, we said that SGLT inhibitor has really rapid onset effectiveness And then in that one week to 14 days, you'll initiate then your beta blocker and your MRA. In that two to four week window, you're titrating up the ARNI and the beta blocker and you're continuing on your MRA and SGLT. Again, finally, as you wrap up that three week to six week window, you continue on your target dose of your ARNI, titrate up your beta blocker, and your MRA, and continue on to your SGLT inhibitor. Now, either strategy obviously requires a team approach to care. So consider developing protocols or maybe standing orders for medication titration that can be implemented by nursing staff between visits. That's how you keep the patient on track for titration. What about potential adverse effects for either of these strategies? Well, tolerability, is enhanced by starting at those low doses. So you want to make sure you start at a low dose. SGLT inhibitors and MRA rarely cause symptomatic side effects. They're very well tolerated. Hef-Ref disease progression may be misinterpreted as a medication-related adverse event. So I'll give you an example. Patient comes in with fatigue. You've just titrated their metoprolol from 25 to 50 milligrams once daily. If they've tolerated the 25 milligrams and you're going up to 50, it's less likely that that fatigue is related to the meds. More than likely, it's related to heart failure. So rapid med titration will help improve those symptoms. Disease state worsens. Worsening is more likely if you delay the initiation. So really think about starting either all four at low doses or two at a time. Now that we've talked about all four pillars of therapy in the real world, many patients don't receive them. And Leslie, I really want you to talk about challenges associated with getting the patients on these needed therapies. What strategies can NPs use to help tackle these challenges? Yes, Midge. There are
1: many barriers for why patients with hef may not be on the optimal therapy that we have described. Optimal therapy is defined as guideline-directed medical therapy provided at either the target dose or the highest tolerated dose for a given patient. As we've discussed, target doses, recall, are the doses targeted for in the clinical trials, but many patients aren't on either. One reason, the landscape is confusing for providers provider-facing tools are available, however, to help you with decision-making for the treatment plan. One tool that's free in the public domain from the American College of Cardiology is called the Treat HF mobile app. Nurse practitioners and other clinicians can use this to guide decision-making on which class of medication to add based on patient-specific criteria. We will list this in your resources for this podcast. And this is updated every time the guidelines or expert consensus decision pathways are updated. These are patients that have symptomatic heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And so you enter the patient indications, you review individualized next steps for the medical therapy, And you can actually email or print a summary of the next steps to yourself or the patient. You don't put in any HIPAA-protected identifiable information. You just put in the details. They reference detailed information on what to start, what are the options, how to titrate, and monitor each medication. And this guidance helps you optimize the overall medication strategy. Also, the second most helpful thing that I recommend are these expert consensus decision pathways. These are shorter documents as compared to the longer clinical guidelines. They're user-friendly and the tables are invaluable. So this is what the Treat HF app is made from. And in fact, there's one coming out hopefully in February 2024 on HEFREF. There was one on HEF-PEF, the preserved EF that we're not talking about today, published in May of 2023, and there's one coming out in 2024 for hospitalized patients. Okay, so moving from the provider-facing tools, let's talk about another reason there are barriers for having patients on these meds. From the patient perspective, it's confusing, especially when they have other conditions that require treatment, medications included. So what I like to use are shared decision-making aids. For example, we've talked about the patient and clinician need to make a decision whether to use an ARNI with the highest level of evidence versus an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. So decision aids help patients and their caregivers make informed choices. So again, the American College of Cardiology has various shared decision-making tools that you can show on a computer or what we do in clinic is print it out. So these are in various conditions, but if you look for the heart failure ones, and we'll make the link available, it's basically a four-page document that's very user-friendly and helpful for those that have lower health literacy. There's stick figures. It shows the three choices between ACE inhibitor, ARB, and ARNI, what those are, how the thumbs up or thumbs down. So you basically work through this with the patient. It talks about how often you would take each of the meds, whether side effects like cough or dizziness. And then it actually shows stick figures that shows after two years of, for example, being on an ACE inhibitor, how many patients died and were still living. They show little figures of different colors compared to two years on an ARNI. And so the patient can decide if that's enough of a difference. And then let us not forget the cost. So it shows three scenarios, patient A, B, and C, that have different coverage from none, partial to total coverage. And it talks about what example would be a copay for each of those classes of meds. Finally, it gives advice about calling the insurance company or calling the pharmacy to get more information so that you can make a decision as a patient and a caregiver. And then at the bottom, it actually shows the benefits on like a scale, a, a scale from zero to 10 of what the patient thinks of the benefits, one versus another, and how the benefits and the costs would weigh into their decision. So it's a very helpful aid that makes decision-making more transparent. And I find it helps in educating patients. Speaking of cost, cost is in particularly challenging for some patients with the newer meds like the Arnie's and the SGLT inhibitors. So what I recommend is discuss out-of-pocket cost and co-pays up front. Use that decision-making aid, but also pull in consultations with social worker, pharmacists pharmacy assistant plans, especially to help with prior authorization. Helping with access to copay assistant really helps patients when prescribing. Other things you can do is try and prescribe 90 day refills when available. Also, synchronize. You can ask the pharmacies to synchronize so you go pick them up all at once because sometimes the going back and forth to the pharmacy is a barrier never mind the gas and parking. Cost comparisons, pharmacists can do that. And there's many other strategies about cost issues as well as how to tackle those pre-authorizations in our resource guide that we provide. Finally, sometimes it's just tricky titrating, starting and titrating these meds. So a few pearls, if the patient is what we call wet, where their fluid is a little bit above their ideal, not ideal weight, but we get to know what a good weight is for each of our patients. And I'm not talking what's the best BMI. I'm talking about a good fluid weight. If you find they're a couple pounds up or they're a little wet, that's the time to start the ARNI or the ACE inhibitor ARB because you've got a little more fluid there and it's less likely to have a hit to the kidneys. Whereas in the clinic or wherever you're seeing them, in the hospital or clinic, if they're a little dry, maybe they're a pound or two down from their good dry weight, that's the time to start or go up on a beta blocker. Now, we've sort of confused the landscape because of the rapid titration stuff. But if you're ever in that situation of of what to do. Another pearl, if they're hypotensive, consider what Midge said, the MRAs or the SGLT inhibitors, they're less likely to drop blood pressure. I've learned more even today of remembering that. Kidney dysfunction, as I said, could get in the way. A lot of our patients have chronic kidney disease, and so they may need closer monitoring and a little slower titration. But remember the pearls that Midge has shared, low potassium diets, salt substitutes that do not contain potassium, An SGLT inhibitor maybe is a good place to start with those patients with kidney dysfunction because it helps lower potassium. And there's also new potassium binders on the market. I'll wrap up with special populations. I know we don't have time to go into all of them, but special populations include older patients, frail patients, and they're not necessarily the same group, or those with polypharmacy. We know that more than 50% of patients with heart failure on Medicare have four or more non cardiovascular comorbidities, and more than 25% are on six or more medicines, which makes adding more meds for heart failures challenging. Wow. Therefore, despite our best efforts for starting or uptitrating the four pillars of medicines we've talked about today, Nurse practitioners and other clinicians sometimes need help from experts. Midge, how do you know when a referral should be made to a heart failure
2: specialist? Well, Leslie, first of all, thank you for that really in-depth focus and helping us kind of narrow our perspective on what are the reasons patients don't get titrated? I think only one thing I'm going to add to, pharmacies, right? Pharmacists, whether you have them available in your clinic space or your local pharmacy, find out who delivers. Because as Leslie mentioned, when picking up, getting them on the same cycle, you know, if a pharmacy can deliver it, that's all the better for the patient because we know that sometimes transportation is a barrier for medications. The other is, once that six-week window has passed and you have rapidly titrated up their meds, If patients have literacy issues, cognitive impairment, challenges, get them in pill packs so that they're all together and the patient won't miss any doses. But when to refer to a heart failure specialist? Well, there's a great mnemonic that was published several years ago, and it's called, I need help. And boy, if I wasn't practicing in this domain, I still have to go back to, I need help. So sometimes the I stands for patients who are on inotropes, Sometimes they're discharged from the hospital, or sometimes they recently needed to be treated on inotropes, and maybe they're discharged off it. So keep that inotropes like dopamine, dibutamine, milrinone. N, NYHA class 3B or 4 for persistently elevated BNP and pro-BNP levels. Always compare pro-BNP to pro-BNP and BNP to BNP because they have different scales. The first E is for end organ dysfunction. If you start seeing worsening kidney function, worsening liver function, consider a decline in the heart failure condition for patients with HEFREP. The D is for defibrillator shocks. Patients who have an ICD, which is part of the guidelines, so refer back to that, but start having Defibrillator shots, that's a sign you need to refer to a specialist. H, hospitalizations, more than once in the past 12 months. So Leslie, if I asked you right now, you know, the patients you saw, how many who are not on optimal GDMT have been hospitalized in the past year, you might say, oh, three, four times, right? So really pay attention to that frequency of hospitalizations. E, E is for edema despite your escalation of those diuretic doses or worsening heart failure symptoms of shortness of breath and reduction in exercise tolerance. L is for low systolic blood pressure, less than 90. And along with that, elevated heart rate. So maybe you've maximally tolerated their beta blocker dose. They're on metoprolol 200 once a day, but their heart rate starts going up. That's a time to call for help. And then P, progressive intolerance or down titration of that GDMT. Maybe they're becoming more hypotensive or more lightheaded or symptomatic. So these are a lot of pearls that I've just shared of when you need to think about referring to a heart failure specialist. They don't need to meet all these criteria for help, but think about, I need help. Hmm, maybe I should call and refer someone. Leslie, would you like to summarize a few key points and wrap up this podcast? Thank you, Midge. I'll remind our
1: listeners that we will have the resources and the I Need Help list provided. I like to keep in mind the top reasons I refer to a heart failure specialist are that EF less than or equal to 35% because that can be common in a cardiology setting. Also, if I'm having patients that I'm either not able to titrate the meds up or I'm having to decrease doses in some cases due to that kidney dysfunction, those are the ones. All right, so I'd like to summarize my three key points when treating patients with HEF-REF. Patients do benefit most when all four of those med classes are on board. So that's why we call them the four pillars to hold up that great care. Number two, prompt initiation and rapid titration of those four pillars over several weeks, we've said six weeks based on the trial, rather than months, has a significant impact on mortality or, and morbidity in this patient population. That's a game changer as we've discussed. So we should have a sense of urgency in treating these patients. And last, don't hesitate to refer patients to a heart failure specialist if you need help. And you notice I said a heart failure specialist, like refer them to Midge. You can refer them to a nurse practitioner who's in a heart failure clinic. I didn't necessarily specify a heart failure cardiologist. We all work as teams. So, Midge,
2: any final remarks as we wrap up today? Leslie, I think both of us shared not only pearls, but this really significance of not only heart failure as an illness, but the impact we can make with our patients with rapid titration of the guideline-directed four-pillar therapy. I want to thank A.N.P. for allowing us to share this in such an informal format, and thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you so much, Leslie and Midge. It has been a pleasure listening to you and gaining your perspective and insights on this very important topic. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed in your practice. And don't forget, you may claim CE for this program through February 2025. By logging into the CE Center at aanp.org forward slash CE Center, register for this program, enter 0214CE in the code prompt, and then complete the post-test and evaluation. Thank you for listening, and as always, be kind, be safe, be effective, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm.